This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin. Join me as we talk to those in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. Welcome to the episode. It's already the end of June, which is so hard to believe. Feels like the season just started. Well, at the same time, like first bud break of trees was ages ago. The big topic of conversation in most fields lately has been the rainfall, or for many, the lack thereof. While the far southwest regions like Essex County, they've gone from dry to soaking wet in the last few weeks. With concerns now over standing water and fields, other regions, though, they've seen very little precipitation at all. And in fact, for most of the other regions in the province, the month of June will actually fall below the 10-year average for rainfall. But nonetheless, fruit and vegetable crops, they seem to be progressing surprisingly well considering the drier conditions. So asparagus harvest is all but wrapped up. June-bearing strawberry harvest continues, and early cabbage and broccoli are close to harvest now. The dry weather's made for an interesting weed control for some. Not only have pre-emergent herbicides not activated with the dry weather, but there's been a lack of soil moisture for weeds in the top profile to germinate. However, those that can source water from lower in the soil, like perennial weeds of thistle and nuts hedge, they have really taken advantage of things this season. There is one benefit to dry weather. Uh, It can actually make for a pretty low disease pressure year. But as with most things, there's always exceptions to this rule. And so a, a big find this month was the first season's detection of downy mildew in a cucumber field in Kent County, and that was on June 17th. This is an unusually early start to the downy mildew season, and fortunately there haven't been other detections since then. But another common disease to crops this year, it's powdery mildew, and this really does favor hot, dry weather, so it's no surprise that we're seeing that across the province. And in fact, rain will actually wash mildew spores off leaf surfaces. But all that said, with the areas that have had that significant amount of moisture over the last few weeks, growers do need to be on the lookout for more disease development in the coming days. And while it may not necessarily have been a disease year so far, insects, they really thrive in this hot, dry weather, as we've seen kind of week after week, including some pests either emerging earlier than normal or at much elevated numbers right out of the gate. Just to name a few insects we're currently seeing active in fruits and vegetables. Imported cabbage worm and diamondback moth pressure remains high in brassica crops. Leafhoppers like potato leafhopper and aster leafhopper activity continues, and we'll likely see a flush of these leafhoppers moving into horticulture crops shortly, as there's lots of hay that's being cut right now, and so these leafhoppers will move from those field crops into the other fields. The amount of leek moth captures has increased in several regions, and thrips pressure is quite high in crops like onions. Colorado potato beetle are hatching and feeding in most areas of the province, as well as lots of tarnished plant bug activity. And we're seeing aphid scale and psyllid pressure quite high in tree fruit and nuts this year, 
but at the same time we're also seeing fairly high beneficial insect populations, helping to kind of keep these pests at bay. Now gypsy moth caterpillars, they're now too large for effective management. There's been quite severe tree defoliation and damage in many regions this year, but very soon, if not already in some of those earlier areas, they'll start pupating, so that risk of damage is really at its tail end. And lastly, our berry crop specialist has also reported the first spotted winged Drosophila find in Oxford County, and that was this last week in June that it was found. So in today's episode... I'm going to sit down with Elaine Roddy. She's Omafra's vegetable crop specialist for cucurbits, sweet corn, legume vegetables, and asparagus. And during our chat, Elaine talks about a group of females, a wonderful group of females, that spend their days literally making house and gathering food for their young ones. Well, the males in their life, after filling their belly with a good drink, they like to take a long, leisurely afternoon nap. (laughs) No, you didn't just accidentally switch to another podcast. Elaine's talking about the very important and highly specialized pollinator, the squash bee. So enjoy the buzz of this month's episode as we take a trip to the pumpkin patch. As always, if you're looking for up-to-date information about horticulture crops grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs provided in the show notes. Hi, Elaine. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, it's good to to be here. Uh, Let's see. Before we get into things, can you just give a little introduction about yourself, your role with Omafra, like what crops you cover and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm a vegetable crop specialist and I've been with OMAFRA for over 20 years. And I've actually been mainly in the same position for that entire time. And the crops that I cover are cucurbit crops, which we're here to talk about today. And that includes pumpkin squash, melons, cucumbers, and all of those in that family. And then I also cover sweet corn and the legume vegetables and asparagus. Awesome. It's a nice mix. So well, okay, I, I always look forward to talking to you, but um, but today I'm particularly excited because I, I really am looking forward to kind of talking a little bit more in terms of pumpkin pollination. Um, it's, it's an area, I think, just pollination in general, crop pollination, I think, is a really fascinating subject just in terms of, you know, all the various aspects that impact it and fruit set and, you know, the wild pollinators that we have in the province. Um, and it, from you know entirely selfish side of things <laughs> in apples for the last few years we've there's really been a lot more work being done looking at establishing pollinator communities and you know just what the diversity is that we have around and um i've been watching veg growers really closely <laughs> and seeing you know all of the awesome practices that uh, the vegetable growers are doing in terms of supporting um, the communities and, you know, supplementing habitat and all of that. So, so anyways, long story short is I'm really excited to talk to you about that. <laughs> I'm excited too. The, there's a nice body of research that we're starting to be able to draw upon. We've gone from knowing very little about some of these native pollinators to, you know, starting to understand their importance to the, to the crop. And I think that is a cool place for growers to be when we look at particularly the pollination of pumpkins and squash. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, so do you want to actually, do you want to talk a little bit just in terms of the pumpkin industry in Ontario, just in general first? 
yeah, so it's it's a good industry. It's it's been gently increasing over probably the past 20 years. Fall crops and fall entertainment has become a very big deal and also got a substantial proportion of our crop goes into into the states, um, particularly California, because the climate in California isn't always conducive to to pumpkins and squash. And so a lot of our growers have found markets there. And yeah, it's fairly, fairly stable. And they're a fun crop to work with. <laughs> I can imagine. And so and do you so do you find that there's been quite an increase in terms of kind of the agritourism side of things? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Definitely. And I don't know that the stats always reflect that. But we've, you know, we've gone from from kind of a medium-sized industry to where we have, you know, this very niche market agritourism side of things. And then we also have some very large wholesale growers as well. Right. Okay. So, okay, well, let's talk about Bloom then. So what is it about pumpkins that is so unique? So they're interesting because the plants produce both a male and a female flower. They're produced on the same plant. Usually the male flowers come out a little bit earlier and they're higher in the canopy. They're, they're sticking out of the canopy a little bit with female flowers tend to be closer to the ground. And when you look at those flowers, it's quite easy to tell which one is the female one because it will have a little tiny baby fruit at the base of it. So right underneath that um, funnel shaped petal it will have a little tiny squash or a pumpkin or in the case of cucumbers and melons. And you can see right off the bat from day one, the shape of that fruit is already unique to the variety that it is. And if the plant is pollinated, that fruit will develop seeds and the seeds will allow it to expand and grow. If there's insufficient pollination, then that little tiny baby fruit will abort and will not form a fruit. So what we need, because the flowers are not perfect flowers, we need to physically move that pollen from the male flower over to the female flower. And that is mainly done by bees. And so do you have pollination services? Like we bring in honey beehives and apples. Do you do the same thing? So historically, no. Um, that was not something that was very common. But with increasing acreage and also with concerns around variability of the natural honeybee population, I found that many growers have started bringing in honeybees into pumpkins and squash. And that's where our research comes in and just really adds an interesting piece to that puzzle because we have found that the bulk of the pollination, certainly in southwestern Ontario and central Ontario, the bulk of the pollination is being done by native pollinators, even when we're bringing bees into the fields. Interesting. So, okay, can we kind of dive into that a little bit more then? So what are you finding in terms of those native pollinators? So squash is native to North America. And there has there's an insect, a ground nesting solitary bee that has basically co-evolved with squash. So it started in Central America with squash plants and it has disseminated as squash got grown further and further north. This bee also became endemic in, in the areas that squash was being grown. So the two plants rely on each other quite extensively. And so when you look at that squash bee, it's a ground nesting. And it survives off of squash nectar and pollen. 
And that's when you say ground nesting, that's like they're in the field? Yeah, you can often find them right in the field, often at the edges of the field, or even in grassy areas around, um, you know, if there's a farmscape where pumpkins have been grown a lot in that area, you'll find there could be grassy areas that are home to a nesting aggregation. So sometimes there can be literally thousands of these solitary nests in an area on a farm. And they're about the size of a pencil. It's almost like you took a pencil and drilled it into the ground and you have this perfectly round hole, often with just a little you know, dusting of soil where they've excavated that hole. You get a little mound of soil. Um, <laughs> That's really cool. And, and then what, in each hole is an individual bee? So each hole will be kind of this apartment complex of nests. So <laughs> the female will dig this long tunnel that goes probably 12 to 24 inches straight down and then she'll branch off these little self-contained apartments where she lays her eggs and so each egg will be laid on top of a pollen ball so the females are incredibly busy digging these nests and then foraging in the pumpkin and squash fields for pollen they'll create this very compact little pollen ball lay their egg on top of it and then seal off that cell and dig the next cell And then, so each nest will have several different little apartment cells that each one contains a pollen ball and a larvae. Those larvae, once they hatch, will eat that pollen ball, spend the winter in the nest, and then emerge as adult bees next year. Okay, so next year's community then is is this year's babies. (laughs) Yeah, so it's just one generation per year. That um, female will spend her entire summer provisioning her little nests, and we've we've taken casts of them, and they're really quite amazing. Just the the architecture and construction of these. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's like the the epitome of the definition of busy bee, (laughs) right? And then it's kind of interesting because the males, all they do is sip nectar (laughs) oh i'm not getting into that (laughs) no comment so you can find them um you'll find them sleeping in the bloom so the squash the squash flower is actually only open for one day um, from sunrise and usually by nine by 11 a.m the blossom is closed over and so if you go through in the afternoon and you open some of these old blossoms that have closed over from earlier in the day you'll find the male squash bee just hanging out <laughs> relaxing that sounds that sounds great <laughs> it does it sounds like quite the life it's <laughs> <laughs> so funny well and so okay so how i mean so okay the, the flower being only open for one a single day i mean you do have to have those colonies those communities established and raring to go right would you not you do but it's a little different than apples so the blossom is only open for one day and the bulk of our pollination activities tend to occur early so between 6 and 8 a.m and by then what we found through the research that was led by dr susan chan and dr nigel rain at university of guelph and I was involved in the the field survey work, we found that by 8 a.m., the pollen was largely depleted. The bees, both the squash bees and the honeybees, would still be in those flowers foraging for nectar, but at that point, the pollen had already been depleted. So in order for the fruit to develop, 
we need, they estimate 15 visits from bees during that period of time. So those fields need to be really busy and active with bees pollination to occur. But, where, but when you think about, I mean, there are some bee species that really, you know, that's not a timing when they are actually out and active. So is that, has squash bee, they've kind of evolved that timing? For sure. And so they are, you know, as soon as you're in the field and we're in there at sunrise waiting for waiting for the bees to become active and those squash bees become active as soon as the sun comes up. Whereas we find the honeybees, they're really not becoming active in the field until after 9 a.m. They like mm-hmm. warmer, brighter conditions. Mm-hmm. And so even where we have honeybees in the field, if the squash bees are present, we're finding the honeybees are not actually contributing to the pollination services. So from a grower standpoint, why rent hives when you can get it for free? Completely, completely. Yeah, that's a huge investment, right? If it's not, you're not getting that return from it. For sure. And then the really big difference if we're looking at the pollination of vine crops versus um, tree fruit is that we have a longer window for that to occur. So yes, we only have a few hours in which each individual blossom is open. That plant is going to keep on producing female blossoms until it sets its fruit load. Okay, so it'll just keep blooming. Yeah, so if I don't hit pollination with this female blossom today, there's gonna be another one, maybe two nodes down the, the vine that will be open in a day or two and it will keep doing that until it sets its fruit. Okay. And once the fruit has met its fruit load, it will continue to produce female blossoms, but it will actually abort them because it's not gonna, once you've hit, and it depends on the variety. So for pumpkins, like a, a large pumpkin, you're probably only looking at one, maybe two fruit per plant or for uh, acorn squash variety, then I'm going to be producing three or four squash per plant. So okay. it depends on the variety. But once it's hit that fruit load, the plant is not going to waste resources on more fruit than it can handle. Right. Okay. Oh, interesting. So it's just got that kind of energy allocation already divvied out. That's really cool. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit more in terms of the squash bee themselves. So they've, they've really kind of fine-tuned that life cycle to match what's happening with the flowering and are they are they only gathering this pollen from those crops or are they a bit more generalist I think of honeybees I mean they're going to the flowering trees nearby and the weeds and all of this how how specific is the foraging of squash bees so certainly once pumpkins and squash are in flowering that is exactly where you'll find them they require that pollen to complete their life cycle. Like I'm not aware of any information that suggests they can do that with any other species. And they can't even do it with the other non-native cucurbits. So when you look at crops like cucumbers and watermelon and cantaloupe, they are not pollinated by the squash bee. Those crops definitely need honeybees in them in order to do that pollination job. The squash bee really is a specialist. Now it is a bit of an unknown what they do before squash and pumpkin are available like assuming that their overwintering emergence may not like is it completely synchronized with the flowering of the pumpkin and squash crop or do they emerge earlier and maybe do some feeding on other pollinators before they enter the pumpkin and squash crop we don't know the answer to that and do they do they have a large foraging area 
do they will they travel distances or it really is i mean you stay once a community develops it stays put they uh, my experience here in southwestern ontario where we do have you know fairly long distances just with some of the larger growers and where they're growing this year versus last year they can be fairly long distances like a couple kilometers away from last year's field but they always seem to get repopulated with the with the squash bee. Interesting, really. And so, and does it take long? Does it like does that kind of after a, a few years, or do you see that almost instantly? They just seem to be there. It's really amazing. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, I wish I I wish I knew more about you know the intricacies of this. And I think the important thing is that they do always seem to be there, but you do have to check. That was part of Susan Chan's work was looking at, can we develop a threshold of pollinators so that we know whether or not additional services are needed? So she developed a really easy protocol where you just go out and you count pollinators and blossoms um, on a hundred different or 25 different fruit. And you do that four different times. So it's, it's 25 blossoms four times in the field, any time between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m., which is when our peak um, peak pollination period is. So you go into the field, you look at those 25 blossoms, and you look at another 25 and another 25. And then once you've got 100, you look at what your average number of pollinators is. And what Sue has found that if you've got seven pollinators on 25 blossoms, you're good to go. Oh, okay. You don't need additional pollinators in there. And so that's a really good tool for growers to be able to use early on in the season to just identify, do they have sufficient pollinator resources or do they need to pull, pull in a, a honeybee colony or two? Well, and so what about, can we talk a little bit about um, kind of the production practices and how that could impact those communities that you've got developing there. Are there certain things that people do that may have an impact? So if we look at their their habitat, their ground dwelling, and you, you know, dig these tunnels down and that's where they're going to emerge from. So having areas within the farmstead where there's as little tillage disruption as possible would be ideal. And certainly deep tillage is, is going to be damaging to those communities. And my observations on farms in this area is that quite often it's those fence rows. And so if you're able to increase the width of your fence row, just so you've got, you know, a nice maintained grass area, they don't seem to like the really, really long grasses that you let go. So you want it to be something that gets mowed a couple times a summer. But if you can have the field edges that are left to grass strips or wind strips within the field. A lot of growers use wind strips just for wind abatement in the early season. That can then become a really nice nesting habitat for those squash bees, especially if you make it a permanent wind strip. It's not something that you're redeveloping every year. You put it into a perennial grass and have that have that there in the crop year in and year out. That will give a really nice habitat for those bees. We don't, I'd like to have a deeper understanding of the impact of tillage on them. Yeah. Uh, so what other things then can people, could growers do then to try and encourage, you know, habitat and, and encourage those communities? So yeah, the tillage thing is going to be a big thing. And then having, you know, having a good supply of squash within your rotation on that farm should give them 
you know, the the food habitat that they need and then looking at other pollinators because there are you know bumblebees are we definitely see bumblebees and as an active pollinator in the cucurbit crops we do see the wild honeybees and a number of different other solitary bees so anything you can do within the farmstead to enhance the diversity of bloom that you've got so that over the course of the season we're feeding the pollinators not just the commercial crop but we're giving them you know a nice diverse nutrition to to draw back on and even for those growers who who do need to use honeybees for whatever reason making sure that those honeybees have a good water source and, and that they've got a good source of pollen after the cucurbit crops are done because if they honeybees especially if they live solely on cucurbit pollen they're going to be poorly nourished going into the into the winter season they cucurbit pollen lacks an essential amino acid for them. They need a more diverse source of food than just cucurbit pollen. Oh, okay. Interesting. And would you say that any sort of um, pest management strategies for managing those other pests, any sort of impacts that it may have on populations? Yeah, so we do need to consider that. And that is one of the criteria that the PMRA is looking at when they're registering and reviewing pesticides, knowing that we've got this, this native pollinator that has such a close relationship with cucurbits, we need to look at what our pest control measures are going to do to that essential pollinator. And so that's part of their review. And that's part of the work that was done with the University of Guelph. Susan Chan did an excellent presentation for the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Grower Conference this year. And so she gets into more specifically into, into her results. But it's a challenge because we do need to manage pests. Our big concern in cucurbits is the striped cucumber beetle, which transmits bacterial wilt. And bacterial wilt, unfortunately, once it's in the plant, um, high death rate of those plants, they don't survive, they don't produce fruit. And so it's not just a cosmetic reason why we're controlling that insect. Mm -hmm. If we don't control it, um, there won't be any yield. Those plants will die and, and there won't be any pumpkins out of that field. So it is an important issue for us to manage the cucumber beetle, but we want to do it in a way that isn't going to harm the pollinators because we need them too. Completely. You uh, you mentioned Susan Chan's presentation. Are there, do you have any kind of key resources that you'd recommend for anyone that's looking to learn more about squash bees? Um, there's her presentation and then there is a fact sheet that she wrote when she was working with an organization called Farms at Work. Um, they're based out of Peterborough and so she's got quite an excellent fact sheet on that as well. If you google squash bee there's a lot of really interesting research that has been done like in Ohio and some of the other other U.S. Great Lakes states because we're all in the same boat as far as the importance of a cucurbit crop and and the abundance of natural pollinators. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Cool. Well, anything before I before I s sign off with you, then do you have anything that you want to bring forward that you think is important for pumpkin pollination? Just get out there and look at your crops during early bloom do those those bee counts it's actually a really pleasant time of day to be out <laughs> in the pumpkin field watching the sunrise yeah, and no it's kidding. nice and cool and i really quite love it even though the project is done i'm thinking i need to do some counts this year just for fun <laughs>
Take your coffee, spend a nice morning. <laughs> They're quite a, oh, I know the other thing I wanted to mention that that um, is quite fascinating is that they, they don't sting. Um, they do have stingers, oh. but they're a really docile, friendly bee. And certainly when I started doing this work, I would bring my kids out to the field and they would quite enjoy collecting these little fuzzy squash bees because they're quite hairy, very effective at moving pollen because they're so hairy. So there's the little fuzzy teddy bears of a bee that are very gentle and don't sting. <laughs> I love it. Gentle, they sleep in the bloom. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they're, they're really quite endearing. I never thought I would be that interested in a bee, but they really are quite endearing. <laughs> it's good. It, you need that, right? Because I mean, sometimes bees get the bad rap. People are so scared of the sting. So <laughs> right. The more teddy bears we get, the better. <laughs> exactly. We, uh, in agriculture, we tend to default to honeybees as the key pollinator. And yes, so completely. It's really interesting to see that there are so many other species out there. Mm-hmm. And such, and and you know, relatively simple modifications to do to really support the communities. I mean, it's just you know, keeping some grassy areas and and those sort of things, trying to have some you know, flowering landscape or whatever else needs to support it. I think those are, you know, relatively easy changes to be able to make yeah, such an impact. We've had a number of pumpkin growers over the past past years have gone to reduce tillage, no tillage, zone tillage, and they see other benefits. Like not only is that going to benefit the pollinators, but you also get weed suppression and you also get cleaner fruit at harvest because they're not right. sitting directly on the ground and picking up all of that that mud they're sitting on a on a residue mulch which keep the fruit cleaner so there's a lot of wins in the system really good point cool well i really appreciate this today this has been i i'm always i'm always fascinated to hear about squash bees such a neat dynamic that happens there but i really appreciate your time and all that information it's been fun chatting You are listening to Elaine Roddy, Vegetable Crop Specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. Thanks for tuning into the episode today. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin for the What's Growing On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit vegetable, and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. Big thanks to Jade Lowe for editing this episode. Music is the track Aspire from Scott Holmes. And I'll be back soon with an all-new episode of What's Grown On, but in the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions you'd like to hear covered, please send us an email to onhortcrops at gmail.com. That's O-N, hortcrops at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.